Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Back to the Future Part 2 episode. If you Great, Scott! Listen, if you haven't listened to the first episode, I know sometimes when these download, they download in the order from newest to oldest. So if you're just joining us, make sure you go back and listen to Back to the Future Part 1. And that is the original movie, Back to the Future. We broke it down into two parts. This is not Back to the Future Part, you know, Part 2. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right into here. Um, I forgot to mention this yesterday on Part 1, but this is a fan pick by Eric Cummings, a, a longtime friend of mine. So I told him I tried to get him to come on, but he wouldn't. So, Eric, hope we're doing it justice. And so here we go. We're just going to jump right back into the unknown facts and trivia since we covered everything else yesterday. The film went on to inspire the animated adult comedy Rick and Morty in 2013, which has gone on to be an equally popular franchise and is the most viewed series on Adult Swim. The show focuses on a stuttering scientist named Rick and his young, often fearful companion, Morty, both complete spoofs of the original characters. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty hilarious. According to Bob Gale, when the movie was shown recently on broadcast television, the lines about Libyan terrorists were altered for political correctness. This is similar to the issues Gale and Robert Zemeckis had with the terrorist scene in Used Cars in 1980. Hmm. Tim Robbins was considered for the role of Biff Tannen. Huh. I don't know how that would have worked. Yeah, I don't know. In 2006, it was voted the 56th best screenplay of all time by the Writers Guild of America. That's a high honor from the Writers Guild of America. Right. DeLoreans are still built today in Texas using old stock and reproductions. The models built now feature a flux capacitator, which, of course, is just for decoration. If you, um, I think it's O'Reilly's, if you put in a certain item number, it'll pull up the flux capacitor. <laughs> The man driving the Jeep to which Marty hangs on at the beginning of the movie is a stunt, is stunt coordinator Walter Scott. When George McFly says density in lieu of destiny, the Japanese version has him say unten, which means drive, when he meant to say unmi, which means destiny. <laughs> I hope I said those right, Terrence. I know you lived over there. Uh, destiny is, uh, yeah, ume. Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale's Oscar-nominated screenplay was written just after they'd made a used cars movie in 1980. During filming, filming, Crispin Glover would appear to be so nervous because he was still starting out as an actor that he would be speechless. But this was improvised by his character, or improvised his character George McFly, since George is a nervous guy. Glover even, 
Bless me. Uh, man, that was the first. I couldn't hit the <laughs> right. sneeze button in time. <laughs> As a nervous guy. Glover even had to do voiceover recordings for his character because he was too nervous to speak. Get this. As Marty is entering his high school in 1985, the building appears run down and has been covered with graffiti. One of the pieces of graffiti reads, Leia loves Calvin. It serves as an Easter egg of sorts that points out to Leia Thompson's 1955 character falling head over heels for Calvin Klein. (laughs) I'm going to throw this out here right now. Yeah. Why in the future did his parents not know, remember him, that he was the one that got them together? Yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, you it, think it would be uh, one of those life uh, events that they would be like, hey, nah, it could be. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just always alluded, you know, I always like, thought like that was have kind that of crazy. Like have that epiphany moment where, you're look, where they're looking at their son and they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> or, you know, yeah. It was included on the New York Times Best 1,000 Movies Ever Made in 2003 and Total Film's 100 Greatest Movies List in 2010. It was ranked number 28 on Entertainment Weekly's 50 Best High School Movies in 2006 and 15, number 15 on Entertainment Weekly's 20 Best Summer Blockbusters of All Time in 2014. In 2008, it was number 23 on Empire Magazine's 500 Greatest Movies of All Time. And in 2014, it was number 17 on Empire's Magazine's 301 Greatest Movies of All Time. In the same year, it was ranked number 2 on Rolling Stone's 25 Greatest 80s Movies. Oh, so, that makes sense. It's been around a lot. A lot of oh, people yeah. like it. The comic book Tales from Space pays homage to EC Comics, a controversial and influential line of 1950s comics. If you look carefully at the corner of the comic, you can see the EC logo in the upper left. Although there were no Tales from Space by EC, their science fiction titles were Weird Science and Weird Fantasy, there was a comic titled Tales from the Crypt. Robert Zemeckis is a fan of the now defunct or defunct EC and served as an executive producer and directed some episodes of Tales from the Crypt in 1989. Huh. That's pretty good. Sorry, I got kind of a little bit of a cold thing going on, so if you hear some sniffling, it's not me crying. <laughs> it's just this good movie. J.J. <laughs> Cohen originally considered for the role of Biff after Eric Stoltz was cast as Marty. He was replaced by Thomas F. Wilson because Cohen was considered not physically imposing enough next to the six-foot-tall Stoltz. Cohen was cast as one of Biff's gang. According to Bob Gale, had Michael J. Fox been cast from the beginning, Cohen would have probably won the part because he was much taller than the five-foot-four Fox. Huh. So they cast him according to the high just to scale, yeah. you know. In the first draft of the screenplay written in 1980 and 81, Marty was a video pirate. The films that he pirated including Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 19, from 1977, Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back from 1980, Stir Crazy from 1980, and Superman II from 1980. <laughs> this element was removed from subsequent drafts as no studio wanted to make a film in which the hero was a video pirate. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> James Tolkien, not the Hobbit creator, was the first and only choice for Mr. Strickland. This movie holds the record of staying at number one at the box office for three solid months. Now, I don't know if that has since been broken, but that's that's a big feat. Right. According to the website of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, President Ronald Reagan watched the film for the first time at Camp David on Friday, July 26, 1985, three weeks after its release. Watching the film alongside the president was his wife, Nancy, and several aides, including speechwriter Mark Weinberg. Although Reagan's fondness for the film is well documented, Weinberg later recalled that the mention of Jane Wyman's name during one of the scenes made for a very awkward and uncomfortable moment in the room for the President and First Lady. 
Apparently, the subject of the president's first wife, from whom he had divorced in 1949, was such a sensitive one that White House staff members abided by an unofficial ban on ever speaking her name within earshot of any member of the first family, according to Weinberg, which is when Doc says about Jane Wyman. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it really upset Nancy. Awkward. (laughs) Chris McGlover was very argumentative and difficult during the making of the film, which is one of the reasons why he wasn't called back for Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3, which was his dad. Hmm. The school that served as Hill High Valley or Hill Valley High School was Whittier High School in Whittier, California, just outside of Los Angeles. Richard Nixon is an alumni from the class of 1930, and Pat Nixon taught there from 1937 to 1941. Also, just beyond the school is where Strickland's house is, as seen later in Back to the Future in 1989. The back side of the school can be seen as Marty jogs up to the porch. Huh. That's interesting. The name D. Jones appears on the side of a manure truck. This is a reference to unit production manager Dennis E. Jones. When a policeman asks Doc for a permit for the weather permit, he, Doc, can be seen opening his wallet in the background while Marty is sneaking in, uh, his warning note about the future. This could suggest that Doc is bribing the policeman. During the production of Used Cars in 1980, Zemeckis and Gail had a production assistant named Marty Martin Casella, whose name they then used for Marty McFly. Okay, next, the, uh, during the production, oh no, we already just did that one. The town square and clock tower can be found at coordinates 34.141426, comma, negative 118.349783, located on the Universal Backlot, <laughs> if you want to <laughs> Google Earth, I guess. Yeah. In a bonus outtake scene, Marty impersonates a cholo, or Latino gangster, while watching his mom cheating on a test. Many crew members can be heard laughing in the background. This scene can be found on the DVD bonus feature. Oh, man. That's <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> see, Thomas Howe was considered to play the role of Marty McFly. The lion statues in front of the Lion Estates subdivisions were inspired by two like statues in the University City Loop in St. Louis, where Bob Wright, writer Bob Gale grew up. There's a bunch of several Pepsi references in this movie. Uh, I'm not going to go through them all. There's just a bunch of it. But that is obviously, if you were in the 80s like I was, Michael J. Fox played a very important role with Pepsi promoting it and all that. So there's a ton of them in this movie. I'm sure you guys, Huge Pepsi if you watch it, you can find them all. Too bad for those raisins. Right. <laughs> uh, John Cusack was considered to play Marty McFly. In the opening scene, all the clocks are set 25 minutes slow per Doc Brown, except for the two clocks used to trigger automation. The one on the coffee maker and the one that turns on the TV. Hmm. The jukebox in the diner in 1955 is the same type of jukebox in Doc Brown's house in the beginning of the movie. Marty's guitar is used throughout the movie. And Earl, I left this in here because we have some people that listen that are guitar players. Okay, that's cool. And Erlewine Chiquita, a big am sequence. Ibanez Black Roadstar, uh, Roadster 2, scenes of Marty's band performing in the 80s, and a Gibson 1963 ES-345TD, Marty's performing at the dance. Hmm. I don't know what any of those are, but I'm sure somebody out there does. I know what a Gibson is. Well, I've, I've heard the name Gibson, but I don't <laughs> know you know much about it. Of course, this is included among the 101 movies you must see before you die, as pretty Makes much sense. every movie we we cover is. Right. I can't wait till we get to that one. That I bet the one next one we do is not on there, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fun one. Uh, Le- Leia Thompson, Lorraine Baines McFly, turned down the role of Christina Everland DeLucia in a chorus line in 1905 to appear in this film. James Wood was considered for the part of Doc Brown. <laughs> you can you imagine that? 
Right. In the beginning sequence, when painting through all the clocks at Doc's house, there is one which has a man hanging off the hand of the clock. This is from a scene in Harold Lloyd's film Safety Last in 1923. In reality, this I thought this was interesting. I always put a star by my nose if this caught me. So, in reality, yeah. the episode of The Honeymooners um, in 1955 when Marty is watching at the Baines house did not air the night of his unexpected visit on November 5th, 1955. The proper episode should have been The Honeymooners' The Sleepwalker. Uh, but instead, it was The Honeymooners, The Man from Space, which originally aired later on New Year's Eve in 1955. Oh, man. So, I guess they did that to tie in the whole Space Man yeah. thing. Science Fiction Theater. The Hash- Hastings Secret 1955 is the episode of Science Fiction Theater that George McFly missed when he took Lorraine Baines to the Enchantment Under the Sea dance on November 12, 1955. There are two scenes in the 1985 parking lot scene where the miles on the odometers don't match. On the DVD commentary, director Robert Zemeckis says this is due to multiple DeLoreans being used in the shoot. That makes sense. Canadian pop singer Corey Hart was asked to screen test for the part of Marty. Huh. In the scene where Doc is reviewing the videotape from 1985, Doc would have had to fashion some sort of adapter to hook into his television set, as videotape technology of any type was not developed until 1958. Huh. The license plate on the car outside the band audition, which says, For Mary, is a tribute to Mary T. Radford, personal assistant to second unit director Frank Marshall. The backlot used as the town of Hill Valley was also seen in the first episode of The Twilight Zone. Boo-doo-doo. Hmm. I'm trying to remember because I, I did watch it recently. That's one where the guy wakes up in the town and everybody's yeah, yeah, gone. Yeah, everybody's gone, and then in the end, it's a a, a test for him going to the moon. <laughs> That's such a great TV show. Terrence McGovern filmed a deleted scene in which his character forces George McFly to buy a whole case of his daughter's peanut brittle. And the earlier drafts in the screenplay... It's kind of probably like Girl Scout cookies back then. Right. Ooh, and the earlier brittle. drafts in the screenplay, the flux capacitor was called the temporal field... Capacitor. Hmm. The video camera Marty picks up at Doc's house after he gets a call from Doc Brown at night is seen during the opening credits when the camera pans around Doc's house. While the McFly's were at dinner table in 1985, George McFly was watching the Honeymooners episode where Ralph Cramden was dressed up as a space ma- a man from space. When the Vane's family sits down for dinner in 1955 with Marty, the family was watching the same episode. Hmm. So in 85, he was watching the rerun. Yeah. This is the one that was on. While it was planned to use the date... November 5th in the film, what, which happens to be Bob Gill's father's birthday, as well as Mary Steinberg's. Interestingly enough, based on accurate calendars, November 12th, 1955 occurred on a Saturday. Marty McFly was ranked number 12 and Doc Brown number 20 on Empire's Magazine's 100 Greatest Movie Characters in 2015. Interesting. Of all time. I mean, that's... Yeah, I know, right? On November 12th, 2010, the Hollywood Methodist Church, where the Enchantment Under the Sea dance was filmed, was opened for the fans along with J.J. Cohen, Claudia Wells, Jeffrey Wiseman, Bob Gale, Courtney Gaines, and a few other members of the cast and crew that were there. Eric Stoltz has stated that despite having worked on the film for several weeks, he has no memory of it. Probably because you don't remember you got fired from it. Yeah, right. Einstein, which was Doc, Doc Brown's dog, was a Burger Picard mixed breed. This movie was one of the first to be shot at the Universal Backlot. Uh, after an unusual long period of the studio not using their own site as a filming location. Interesting. I wonder how big that really is. The back lot? Yeah. Oh, I, I have no idea. Terrence, you're my California <laughs> insider. You're supposed to know this. Yeah, but I don't know which location is the back lot or if I, it's like if that's even accessible to you know the public. public. Or, yeah. 
In the scene where Marty tells little baby Joey in the crib that he'd better get used to the prison bars, Joey's is dressed in a striped outfit resembling the tradition black and white striped prison uh, outfits of the past. Michael J. Fox and Chris McGlover appeared in Family Ties in 1982 and High School USA in 1983. Marty, when dressed as a spaceman, claims to be Darth Vader from the planet Vulcan, as a reference to the Star Wars uh, Episode Four: A New Hope, and Star Trek 1966. Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown, also played Klingon Commander Kruge, or Krug, Krug, K-R-U-G-E, in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock in 1984. Hmm. Did you know that? I didn't, but I'm also not a Trekkie. <gasps> <laughs> well, you don't have to be a Trekkie to enjoy the movies, Darren. I haven't seen the old movies. <laughs> have you even seen any Star Trek? I've, I've seen the new ones. No, that which, doesn't count. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so. Although they were good. Uh, the diner where Marty first meets his father and calls Doc Brown in this movie was filmed on the back lot of Universal Studios and is the same diner interior in which Johnny Hooker, uh, Robert Redford, meets Doyle Lonigan, Robert Shaw in The Sting in 1973. Huh. Have you noticed that a lot of movies just use the same same scenes? Same, yeah, same that scene. happens a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, they, they might change a little bit here and there, but typically the sets get recycled for multiple things. The song Earth Angel by the Penguins is played during the Enchantment Under the Sea dance on November 12, 1955. It was also played during the Smallville High School reunion dance in Superman 3. Uh, Mark McClure or Dave McFly also appeared in that film in which he played Jimmy Olsen. Hmm. When the DeLorean leaves 1955 and fire tracks are visible on the road uh, on the tar road in Hill Valley, the movie showing it at the theater is The Atomic Kid. When he arrives in the alternative 1985, the cinema changed into an assembly of Christ Church. George, as a fan of science fiction and an author, reads magazines called Amazing Stories, Fantastic Stories Magazine, and Thrilling Wonder Stories. Those were all real magazines. Hmm. Hilldale, a subdivision of Hill Valley, bears the same name as the town in which the Donna Reed Show in 1958 and, theoretically, Dennis the Menace 1959 are set. <laughs> the first Hollywood film to feature a DeLorean, DMC-12. The donning of a Burger King uniform by Marty's brother, Dave, may have been a tribute to Leah Thompson's early acting gigs as a Burger King spokesperson. <laughs> oh, man. Harold Lloyd and Christopher Lloyd hang out on the hands of the clock tower in their career, uh, in their careers. Christopher Reed does that in this movie, and Harold did that in Safety Last 1922. The two Lloyds are not related. So back back to the... I was going to say, back to the spokesperson. Yeah. Uh, back, back in the 80s and 90s, mostly the 80s, a lot of actors would be, I mean, just shampoo commercials, yeah. uh, fast food commercials, uh, Soda commercials, but all fa- that stuff. fast food in general, you really don't see that type of uh, advertising. Oh yeah, you definitely don't see like celebrity advertising, but you know you don't also see like those uh, uh, those those cheeky like models eating fast food like that came out of nowhere. It, I feel like it was short lived, but it was like, why is this a thing? Well, I mean, it's like Michael J. Fox cracking open a Pepsi, you know, yeah, during the Super Bowl right? or whatever. You know, what I mean, it, back that that's what they did. I mean. You weren't alive, so I can't really explain it. But some of our audience will remember. I mean, watching the commercials back then was totally different. You know what I mean? It, than today, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it was, I think they were better. Harry, we already did that. The film was almost titled "Spaceman from Pluto." In the early scenes, the clock tower shows no damage to the concrete ledge below the clock. However, the damage caused by the Doc's character does exist when the Marty character returns in 1985. A Bell Jet Ranger helicopter flies overhead and directs a light to accentuate and clearly show the damage. The change clearly delayed, delayed, de- whatever. That Marty returned to an alternate timeline. I had a Terrence moment. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? You haven't messed up any names so far this episode. 
because you didn't have one. Yeah, exactly. Beginning. I didn't have any to read through this time. <laughs> Can't budget them if I don't read them. <laughs> right. Michael J. Fox did not actually sing Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Um, by Chuck Berry and Marty McFly's singing voice was Mark Campbell. Hmm. 1.21 gigawatts is sometimes thought to be a mispronunciation of gigawatts, but this is actually the official pronunciation of the prefix giga, according to the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology. Hmm. When Doc is preparing Marty to travel back to 1985, he states that lightning will strike the clock tower in precisely 7 minutes and 22 seconds. From that moment, the line is spoken with the lightning seri- uh, when the lightning strikes. The time is actually 8 minutes and 7 seconds. Oh, well, close enough. <laughs> Thomas F. Wilson got married three days after this movie's American premiere. So Biff got married. Interesting. In early drafts of the script, Marty's girlfriend's name is Susie Parker. <laughs> The Tales from Space comic book reappeared in at least two episodes of the television series Oliver Bean in 2003 and in a commercial for McDonald's Mighty Kids Mills. Huh. I've never heard of Oliver Bean. When I was a kid, there were no Mighty Kids Mill. You just got the regular Happy Mill. <laughs> and it was a boy or girl. I've and never then, heard of a Mighty on that. Kids Mill either. Well, while we're, that's where you can get the double cheeseburger instead of the little ah. cheeseburger. But while we're on that, I'm going to state this. So it's on record that I said this. The toys in the Happy Mill back then were so much more better than the toys today. I mean, oh, you would actually, you would actually, you would like actually paper, get like man. a metal Hot Wheel car, or you would get a California Raisin or something, you know. But today you get here, like paper. Fold this paper origami. Yeah, Who right? that? I mean, even when I was a kid, they had some awesome uh, uh, toys. I remember that you know the biggest thing being like the Pokemon toys, and then I think a kid suffocated on the Pokeball and. Then they're like, okay, let's let's do paper now. <laughs> right. Um, George McFly's novel that he wrote is called a, a Match Made in Space and has a person wearing a radiation suit on the cover. The only other actors to have screen time in the DeLorean time machine are the cast members from Spin City in 1996 for a promotion. Huh. Claudia Wells and Huey Lewis share the same birthday, July 5th. Oh, here you go. Ready for this one? Do it. Charlie Sheen was considered for the part of Marty McFly. Oh, man. <laughs> Michael J. Fox was 23 when he played 17-year-old Marty McFly. In the background, there are nine people wearing the official High School Valley jacket. The school's official colors are red and gold. This movie romanticized the DeLorean DMC-12, which is regarded as one of the worst cars of all time. The cast and crew reported on the DVD commentary that the cars often broke down, causing minor delays in production. Doc Brown attempts to defend himself from the Libyans with a nickel-plated single-action army fitted with pearl grips. This film spent 11 weeks at the top of the U.S. box office, although it was knocked off the top for one week by National Lampoon's European Vacation. That makes sense. In 1985. Producer Sid Scheinberg insisted that Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale changed Mrs. McFly's name from Meg to Lorraine after his wife, Lorraine Gary. Even though you never hear the mention of the sports team played at Hill Valley High... Their sports mascot is the Bulldogs. Hmm. The phone number that Jennifer has written on the back of the Save the Clock Tower flyer is 555-4873. I wonder if somebody really has that phone number. You know what I mean? Like, what is that song? Uh, 867-53 or whatever that song is. Yeah, you know what? Someone at one point did have that number, and uh, obviously they had to not have that number. Well, they was like, no, this isn't it. Quit calling or whatever. Yeah. The comic Tales from Space, number 8, August 54, is also seen in Third Rock from the Sun, where Why Dickie Can't Teach in 2000. At around 12 minutes and 30 seconds into the episode, Harry is reading the comic and talking to Sally. Hmm. Jill Sholin has also been considered to play Jennifer. 
In the movie's two time periods, the mayors running for re-election are Bred Thomas in 1955 and Goldie Wilson in 1985, and both have nicknames based on Hill Valley School colors. In wrestling, their surnames form the name of Thomas F. Wilson, who plays Biff Tannen. Hmm. Doc Brown's amp, to which Marty plugs in, is the faceplate to a 1960s Gibson GA-ST amp, which is only around 12 to 15 watts. Some dialogue for the film was used in a remix version of the song Via Violet by Seal at 2 minutes and 48 seconds. Hmm. This is one of those movies that gets sandwiched in with the golden age of Steven Spielberg's career, even though he didn't write the script or direct it, but rather helped Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gill promote it and served as executive producer. Interesting. I always thought he did it. Didn't you? Uh, no, actually. Uh, but I, I think w- when I watched this long time ago, I didn't care. <laughs> yeah, you <even> <laughs> I just watched the movie and like, it was fun. Although Disney and Touchstone allegedly passed on producing the film due to it being too risque, company executives did agree to provide the music, The Ballad of Davy Crockett. Back to Disney rejecting things. Yeah. <laughs> Marty never once addressed his sister Linda by her name in this or any other film of the entire trilogy. The first draft of the script ended with George McFly looking at a 1955 newspaper with a picture of Marty on stage saying, Nah, couldn't be, but it is. So that would have made sense that he actually... Yeah. A third track by Huey Lewis in the news called In the Nick of Time was written for the film, but ended up being used in Brewster's Millions in 1985. Have you ever seen Brewster's Millions? I've never heard of Brewster's Millions. Richard Pryor. Oh, okay. Where he has all that money to spend. Yeah, yeah, okay. And he okay. can't... Yeah, which is good. hilarious. Oh, great, great guy. His comedy's timeless, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> Claudia Wells pulled out of Back to the Future 2 because her mother had cancer and was replaced by Elizabeth Shue. We talked about that in part one. Yeah. The town model Doc uses to demonstrate to Marty his plan to send him back into 1985 was the actual model set used for Hill Valley for the movie. Hmm. In early drafts of the screenplay, grown-ups George McFly was an successful novelist but a prize fighter, an ideal spurred on by the punch he lands on Biff. When Marty shows 1955 Doc the picture in his wallet, he references that his sister is wearing, saying, Look at her sweatshirt, Doc. Class of 1984. The film in which Michael J. Fox appeared before he rolls, or his roles in this film and Family Ties in 1982 was Class of 1984 and 1982. The sound effects for the Clock Tower's Bell is actually a recording of Big Ben, which has traditionally been the ultimate classic bell sound used in old-time radio shows, especially for intense dramatic scenes to represent a city clock tolling the hour. That makes sense. When Marty first arrives in 1955, before he enters town, the billboard advertising Lion Estates is Marty's house. Hmm. Christopher Lloyd and Leia Thompson appear in The Right to Remain Silent in 1996, which obviously they did because I think this movie has the only dialogue they ever did in the six movies. Of Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. The telephone number for Biff's auto detailing is 840-3851. Now that would be fun. Let's dial it right now and see, <laughs> see who answers you want to. <laughs> Both Back to the Future in 1985 and the TV show Highway to Heaven in 1984 were filmed in Pasadena during the same time period. In the Highway to Heaven episode entitled Friends, a student is holding the same book with the Hill Valley Bulldog logo that was used in Back to the Future. George McFly is holding this book in his hands in the high school scene when he is being made fun of by his classmates. Both Back to the Future and Witness. Have you ever seen Witness? Um, it's it a, sounds super familiar. That's the actually. Harrison Ford uh, Amish community. Oh yeah, okay. great movie. 
was honored by the Writers Guild of America in 2006 as one of the 101 greatest screenplays of all time, 56 and number 80 respectively. Despite being ranked higher on the list, Back to the Future still lost Best Original Screenplay to Witness as both the Writers Guild of, of America Awards and the Academy Awards in 1986. Hmm. Contrary. So barely making it. <laughs> this has got to be. This has got to be good because I actually boxed this in on my notes. Contrary to popular belief, there are more than two versions of 1985. There are actually three. The original at the beginning of part one, Dave McFly works at Burger King, Lorraine is an alcoholic, and lectures Marty about girls who chase boys, and Biff is George's boss. The end of part one, after George punched out Biff, which resulted in George being a successful author and owns a BMW, and Biff is not his boss, but rather in his subordinate, he details George's BMW. Then there's the 1985A that everyone knows about. Biff is wealthy, powerful, and evil, and murdered George McFly. Huh. I so don't. I don't remember where that third one came in from, unless it was uh, maybe in one of the sequels. Yeah, it was. It was in the second one. I want to say. Okay. Yeah. The film was originally a one-off movie. Marty travels back in time to November fifth, nineteen fifty-five, the same date that the features in this film, time after time, in nineteen seventy-nine. When Marty falls off the tree, Mrs. Bain, Lorraine's dad, yells, "Stella, another one of those kids jumped in front of my car." Presumably, George was not the first to peep on the rain from that same tree. Yeah. Marty McFly's house was filmed only one fourth mile or a half mile from a scene in Caesar and Otto's Paranormal Halloween in 2015. First of three movies in which Michael J. Fox's character hits a fence with this car he's driving. In this one, Marty hits Old Man Peabody's fence around twin, his Twin Pines. In Doc Hollywood, Ben Stone hits the judge's fence after running off the road. And in The Frighteners, did you see The Frighteners? No. Ah, Frank Bannister <laughs> hits Dr. Linsky's fence after running off the wet road. Huey Lewis, when Marty is being judged at the band auditions at the beginning, the judge who stands up to say, you're just too darn loud, is actually Huey Lewis, whose song The Power of Love and Back in Time are featured on the movie soundtrack and also wrote Marty's audition song, which is a reorchestrated version of The Power of Love. Hmm. Hal Gossman, uh, the picture of Mayor Red Thomas on the election car in 1955. These were cameos. Uh, Deborah Harmon, newscaster on television in the opening scene. And Walter Scott, driver of the Jeep on which Marty hitches a ride. The mall where Marty McFly meets Doc Brown in their time-traveling experience is called Twin Pines Mall. Doc Brown comments that old farmer Peabody used to own all the land and grew pines there. When Marty goes back in time, he runs over and knocks down a pine tree on the Peabody's property. When he comes back to the mall at the end of the film, the sign at the mall identifies the mall as Lone Pine Mall. So he really impacted the future there. That's really funny. The only scene which appears in all three Back to the Future films is that of Doc sliding down from the clock tower on a cable before the clock is struck by lightning. Stuntman Bob Yerkes, who doubled for Christopher Lloyd during the scene, got extra payment for parts two and three without having to do any work. Wow. I guess because he, he was filmed again. You yeah. know Bob Gale confirmed that for the white chest, the wind during the storm at the clock tower was created by using a McBride, which was described by the writer as basically an airplane engine on a huge cherry picker and was placed a good 50 feet away from the actors. The bride was so loud that all the dialogue said by Michael J. Fox or Christopher Lloyd had to be recorded later, or re-recorded later. However, the McBride also had an effect on Fox's health. While filming the sequence where Marty yells up at Doc at the clock tower to tell him about the future, he coughed up blood after filming those scenes. Oh, snap. Wow. That's pretty bad. In the original script, Marty's playing rock and roll at the dance caused a riot, which had to be broken up by police. This combined with Marty accidentally tipping off Doc... Of, to the secret ingredient that made the time machine work, Coca-Cola, caused its history to change. When he got back to the 1980s, he found that it was now the 1950s conception of that decade with air cars and whatnot, all invented by Doc Brown and running on Coca-Cola. 
Marty also discovered that rock and roll was never invented, and he dedicated himself to starting the delayed cultural r- revolution. Meanwhile, his dad digs out the newspaper from the day after the dance and sees his son in the picture of the riot. Hmm. Robert Zemeckis chose a DeLorean as the time machine because it could play with the joke that Marty was an alien and the car was a spaceship in the spaceman from Pluto scene. In the opening sequence, with all the Doc's clocks ticking away, one of the clocks features what just looks like a newspaper cut out of Doc that is attached to the big hand of the clock resembling the scene just before the clock tower being hit by lightning in 1955. And finally, when Marty gets into the DeLorean to travel from 1955 back to 1985, he says that he will give himself 10 minutes to warn Doc about getting shot. But when he puts the new time into the control panel, the time switches from 1.35 a.m. to 1.24 a.m., 11 minutes. However, Doc was shot at 1.34 a.m., so the time Marty gives himself is accurate. Huh. So, Terrence, that coming down to the end of Back to the Future, let's hear your hot take on it. All right, my hot take. It is... It's a fun... Uh, it's definitely a fun watch. I'd say watch it if you haven't seen it. And once again, as I always say, you should have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's it's a fun, uh, you know, time travel movie if you like time travel. And it's, it's definitely one of the uh, relevant movies when it comes to talking about time travel. Because they're like, oh, there's these... Here's all the different theories of time travel. There's more or less the the back to the future um, sort of way of time traveling. Then there's, I believe they mention uh, Doctor Who, of course. And then there's one other that they mention. And then they all affect and do time differently. It's like Superman going around the Earth real fast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or like the Flash, you know. Um, But yeah, uh, if if you're into that stuff, then yeah, it's definitely a must-watch. Or if you just like... uh, I'd say, you know, it's you call this a kids movie, right? Or a teen movie. That's well, probably more Well, more I was going to I forgot to mention this, but there is a lot of language in this movie. Yeah. I went back and watched it. Um it's one thing I don't it's so unnecessary at times put in, you know. <laughs> it's just over the top in this movie it's, at some points. Um but if you don't mind that stuff, then watch it. I think a lot of the times I've seen a lot of these older movies. It was on uh, TV, so they cut yeah. pretty much everything out. Back in the eighties and nineties, they would cut cut a lot of that out. You know what I mean? So um, if you have give it a watch before you let your children watch. I would say just yeah. just to see if you would especially like. if you have a hard language barrier, right? Or not language barrier. Kind of like uh, our uh, podcast. Uh, I won't let Terrence just go off the cuff and just <laughs> have him unleashed on the podcast because he's actually doing a really good job. Because normally he'd be cussing like a sailor, <laughs> keep, keeping the the military man in me right. in check. <laughs> right. I, I keep him. It's a nice balance, uh, but he he hasn't messed up. I haven't had to edit anything else, so he's doing a really good job. So, but we want to keep this family friendly. But okay. uh, yeah, I agree. It, it, it's it's worth a watch. I mean, because just like uh, I was talking to Eric Cummings, the one that uh, requested us, we went out to eat and we were uh, watching this. And he actually watched this at my cousin's house, mm. and uh, he said he was just awestruck because he had never seen anything like it before. You know, what I mean, he was just like oh, he was so engrossed yeah. into it. Um, I don't know how effective that would be in today's with today's kids because they are so saturated with and spoiled with special effects, uh, yeah. CGI. Um, you know, uh, like one of my favorite movies, Clash of the Titans, uh, yeah. the original, not yeah. the, no, not I, the uh, Yeah, But, uh, you know, it was all out of, uh, like, claymation. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and when I was a kid, I was like, oh, here comes Medusa, and she scared me so bad, you know what yeah. I mean? But now you got all the CGI stuff. That new one was so terrible. It was. But, um, I mean, CGI doesn't equal good. Um, right. And I mean, we can I tell that from what was a, where the Rock was the Scorpion King or whatever. Oh that was gosh. the worst CGI I think I've oh, ever seen. Oh man! Um, but 
I, there's a uh, there's sort of a a certain time where I, I guess I can't watch special effect movies, right? Like all '80s movies and special effects, I love because I, I am a huge fan of like action movies, especially, um, and they all have like cheeky effects and explosions and stuff. But um, I I I, I want to say it's like once you get into like the black and white area, let, let let's say like the first second Doctor Who era. Um, those were hard for me to watch because, like, the special, especially when you get into sci-fi. Obviously, if you're dealing with other stuff, it's not so bad. But when you get into sci-fi, it's a little more difficult. Well, it's also <laughs> but, like the original Star Trek. You can see the you know the Enterprise hanging by strings, yeah, you know exactly I mean? and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but anything after that, I have no problem. Uh, you know, going back and watching, it's right. fun. You know, and and the story that they told here was really great. And I, I'm not a real big fan of the sequels. Um, I do love the hoverboard scene, as I've stated. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, Everybody who doesn't want yeah. a hoverboard, a skateboard <laughs> where you don't even have to, you know, wheel around? Um, so there was always a rumor that, oh, they actually have one. They have one. You know, I mean, yeah. when I was a kid, like, oh, is it coming out? Is it coming out? I couldn't wait. But, I mean, now you can go to the mall and you can get one of those two-wheeled yeah, whatever yeah, they are. When they were like, oh, I mean? there's a hoverboard. When, yeah. I, when those first came out, I was like, there's a hoverboard? And I looked at it and I'm like, that's not a hoverboard. <laughs> that's just a, that's just a, a unicycle, basically. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, they did come out with the um, those the shoes that uh, he had, the self lacing shoes. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I oh, who got them? They were like super expensive, obviously, because there's only one pair. Huh. But yeah, they they made those a real thing, and they do self lace. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, it's so much easier to tie your teaching kids how to tie your shoes. You know? Right. <laughs> All right. So. Um, we're we're going to bring this to a close. We are going to be our next uh, superhero movie we're doing. Get ready for it because it's a doozy. Terrence just finished watching it literally right before we sat down. And it is, I know some of you are going to laugh, but some of you are going to love it. It is Batman, the movie. No, not the one with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. Not Heath Ledger and Christian Bell. We're going back. Back to 1966, the Batman the movie with Adam West and Burt Ward. <laughs> so fantastic! Um, oh man! Because I think everybody should see at least once. Even Terrence, he was yeah. a little he was a little shy at first, and then he came around and he's like, "Man, the Penguin is awesome in this movie just because of his quick wit." And you might hear a couple of Penguin quacks out of him because he just started. Quack, to quack, 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 quack. <laughs> yeah, so you got it in this episode, didn't you? So uh, yeah, we're gonna be doing that here real soon. Um, also, I'm gonna go ahead and throw this out there. I think next week, or the next time we record after Batman, we're going to do my dad's movie that he requested, and I did a special interview with him. Okay, awesome. Um, it's going to be the um, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. It's an old black and white film starring Betty Davis. And okay. it's kind of a, like a horror slash thriller slash mental... It's really good. It scared me to death when I was a kid, but then again, it was black and white. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you, kids today are like black and white. But if you have not seen this movie, find it. Um, you won't regret it. It's so – Betty Davis puts on the performance of a lifetime. Um, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. But it's it's a really good movie. So hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Do not forget to watch that. I'm giving you a little bit of heads up because it might be harder to find. Um, so we are on all kinds of outlet media. I found out yesterday um, – Himalaya, the podcast player, we they just picked us up. I guess they just searched and found us, and now we're on that too. So, of course, we were on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher, Podmust, Podbean, uh, 
What am I missing one? Spotify? That's We're it. everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> We're pretty much everywhere you can find a podcast now. So, And also, as of this morning, we are officially over 1,000 downloads, which yeah. some people may not say that's a lot, but for two, a couple guys like us, it's pretty cool. Yeah, right. Um, maybe next time we'll say it's 1 million. You never <laughs> But just keep telling your friends the podcast is growing popularity uh, with workers, friends, coworkers. Um also, we do have a Facebook group, the Tragedy of yep. Cinema Podcast group. Uh, if you want to join it, there's a lot of fun we do on there. A lot of we good do, family fun. Yeah, family fun. And I can't wait to do a Facebook Live. Um, we're going to sit down and talk about that. We'll, we'll hammer that yeah, down. We'll Probably on the Hush Hush We Charlotte episode, we'll announce when we're going to do that. Because we will be doing trivia from all of our podcasts. If you've listened, um, you might want to go back and re-listen because we might throw some trivia out there just from some stupid stuff that we said or mistakes we made. Um, so be on top of your game, maybe in the order of the episodes and all that. Um, and the first one that types it in will get a prize pack or whatever. So we might do like three prizes that night. And you guys can op- ask us questions or whatever, uh, make suggestions. Uh, so we're going to be talking about some stuff to do there. So with that being said, I think this episode is come to a close. And that's a wrap. And, and cut. cut.